0: Hey guys, this is Jacob. I am the pastor of King's Cross Church here in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, Historically, this podcast has been used to do interviews with our friends in Sovereign Grace and uh, to just bring my friendships with others in Sovereign Grace to our church uh, locally here, and we're going to continue to do that. But uh, one of the things I'd like to start doing with this is to do uh, both interviews and discussions with friends locally here in the city and in uh, northern New England, but also just a uh, context for me to be able to fill out dynamics either in the life of our church or in what we're preaching as a church that I wasn't able to get to in a certain Sunday morning sermon or uh, in other contexts that we have together. Uh, so I'm going to do that today. Uh, we have been preaching through the book of Matthew as a church, And it has been fantastic just to see not only who Jesus is and what his kingdom is like and the good authority that he exercises in his kingdom, but now we're in this section of the book of Matthew where we are looking at the life of the church, life together. What does it mean to be the people of God um, in Jesus' church uh, as people who depend on him and live in him? And this past week we looked at Matthew 17, and we saw how Jesus is sufficient for a struggling church. We saw how he was sufficient for people who uh, struggle to see his veiled glory, people who struggle to depend on his power, people who struggle uh, to understand the centrality of his cross, and then people who struggle in joining Jesus' mission. Uh, And kind of alongside this, I've been reading uh, some stuff about and by John Newton, uh, for various reasons, he's been on my radar as just a example of a gospel-centered, Jesus-loving, compassionate, good pastor as a historical figure to look to. Uh, there's other reasons as well that I've been drawn to him, and so not only have I started working through and reading his letters, he's famous for his let- his letters are his primary kind of uh, famous. Mark, apart from obviously having written Amazing Grace, uh, he's most clearly known for that, but uh, his letters are legendary within uh, the Christian history. Uh, Over a thousand letters of his have been preserved um, and passed down through the generations, and they are just filled, chock full of just Christian wisdom. What does it mean to depend on Jesus in various stages of life? What does it mean to walk with Jesus personally? Uh, and so you you pick up uh, not only in the hymn of John Newton, right, this saturation of Jesus and his grace to John Newton um, from, that, from the hymn Amazing Grace, but then you pick that up in his letters. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with John Newton, just a brief biography, like this is like a 30-second shot at it, he uh, was a man who – grew up and then became a not only a captain of a ship but the captain of a slave-trading ship and was a horror—I mean, just if you think about the worst of what happens on slave-trading ships, that was him instigating all that. So he was a slave trader. Um, he became a Christian, and then later uh, God called him into pastoral ministry. And then out of his ministry, he actually worked alongside William Wilberforce to demolish uh, the slave trade in England, so he had a radical conversion of uh, through the grace of Christ, and then was used powerfully by Jesus to bring the personal aspect of Jesus' ministry and the demands of what it means to know and love Jesus, not only into his life for John Newton but then into the lives of those who he was friends with and then in his congregation. And so then alongside kind of getting to know John Newton a little bit better, I have recently been reading through this book by Tony Rinke, uh, John Newton on the Christian life to live as Christ. And this is a series of books from Crossway where they will just pick historical figures, um, pastors and theologians uh, and other folks within the Christian church history, and they will kind of condense their works and writings uh, about the Christian life into, you know, a 200 300 page book thereabouts. And so this one uh, by Tony Rinke has been super helpful. I'm only a few chapters in, and what I wanted to do today is to work through and read a part of chapter 2, which is about Christ being all sufficient, right? We just looked at Matthew 17 and we were looking at how Jesus is sufficient for a struggling church. And I wanted to fill that out a little bit because we can say Jesus is sufficient, uh, but I want to give us some some handles or some hooks to kind of really grapple onto what does it mean for Jesus to be all-sufficient. And Tony Rinke pulls from John Newton's writings to lay out uh, these six categories of how Jesus is all-sufficient. Um, he says Jesus is all-sufficient as our shepherd, all-sufficient as our husband, all sufficient as our friend, all sufficient as our prophet, a priest, and king. And so, what I want to do is basically just kind of read through parts of this chapter uh, and help us kind of think through what does it mean when we say Jesus is all sufficient? Because I don't know about you, uh, potentially today or this week, you are struggling with various aspects of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, struggling to trust Jesus to provide the new job, uh, trust Jesus to give you the grace for parenting, uh, both for your kids, others, people's kids, uh, your grandkids, uh, the, maybe you need Jesus for the family struggles and dynamics of people opposing you in your own family, uh, or at your workplace or just trusting Jesus with your stage of life. Uh, Jesus, I don't know what tomorrow looks like or five years looks like or 10 years looks like, uh, this Jesus is all-sufficient for us, and so I want to bring up these six categories from John Newton to try to help us get down deep into what does it mean for Jesus to be all-sufficient. Um, the beginning of the chapter, Tony comments that at the last, the last interview that John Newton had before he died with a friend, um, he made this comment, "'My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior.'" And he, John Newton, went on to die just a few weeks later on December twenty first, eighteen o seven. And uh, so it's this this man that we want to learn from of it. what does it mean for Christ to be all sufficient. He, the two things he knew: Christ was a great Savior, and that John Newton was a great sinner. And I think that we can all relate to that. So let me let me start out with just kind of working through. This category of Christ as all sufficient as our Shepherd, John uh, Tony Rinkey and John Newton, their their voices kind of blend together. So, I'm not going to necessarily designate who's speaking or whatever from this chapter, uh, unless it's necessary. But about the Shepherd, Jesus Christ as uh, all sufficient Shepherd, we see this: the Christian life is Exodus and exile. The redeemed never walk this path alone. Christians walk together, never far from our good shepherd who leads and guides us in the even, in even the dark, darkest nights in the desert. Left to ourselves, we wander off into thistles and dangers in the wilderness of these years on earth. Our good shepherd sustains us, tames the ravens, which means he provides our necessities, and tames the lions, which means he protects us from dangers. The Good Shepherd promises to watch over us, right? Just to have in view Psalm 23, written by uh, King David. The Good Shepherd promises to watch over us, and nothing, can tame, nothing less can tame our anxieties and insecurities. I am prone to puzzle myself. This is John Newton. I am prone to puzzle myself about 20 things which are equally out of my power and equally unnecessary if the Lord be my shepherd. Christ all-sufficiency as our shepherd is a substance behind the command to be anxious about nothing in Philippians 4 verse verse 6 So this this vision of Christ being our all-sufficient shepherd is finished with this. The Christian life is an exodus with a shepherd guiding the way in order to be our shepherd, Christ became a man. He now and he has now become our chief shepherd. All pastors are under shepherds employed by him and serve a similar similar role of care in the church. Christ intends for his sheep to be fed in the green pastures of the local church. Together as a flock led by under shepherds, we walk together this life with eternity at stake, and we are guided by the chief shepherd's voice along a path across the wilderness To the porch of the house of the Lord and into the presence of the good shepherd forever. Psalm 23, verse 6. Christ is our good shepherd. He died to protect our souls. John 10. We follow follow his all-sufficient voice until we arrive at his all-sufficient face. This is an incredible picture. This is one of the things I love about John Newton is that he, he lays out these vivid pictures that really affect our hearts to see, okay, Jesus is a shepherd, and he leads me by his voice to see his face. Uh, one of the dynamics that we see that's different um, in shepherding uh, between basically uh, kind of Western uh, European models of shepherding versus uh, Middle Eastern versions of shepherding is that in the time of Jesus where he would have been, so the Middle East, uh, that area, uh, they the shepherd cared for his sheep by lead by training them to follow his voice. So they followed behind him as he led them by his voice. Whereas in kind of Western or European models of shepherding, uh, the shepherd was behind and drove his sheep. This this picture that Jesus is ahead of us, calling us by his voice, his word, leading us together as a local church to depend on him uh, amidst all the trials and. Uh, struggles that we experience this week or today, um, he is leading us by his voice tenderly to see his face one day. Uh, John Newton picks up on the second uh, dynamic of what it means for Christ to be all-sufficient by saying that he's our husband, our all-sufficient husband. Uh, Tony Reinke writes, Christ is the all-sufficient husband who willingly weds himself to us. On the one hand, he has taken full responsibility for all our debts. And on the other hand, his honor and riches and the inestimable value of his Eternal estate are now all ours. Our debts are paid, our settlements secured, and our names changed, right? Can you imagine, like, when we talk about a traditional wedding, um, a wife takes her husband's last name to indicate that they are now one family, one estate, one union, and that everything is shared between them. And can you imagine, like, your last name, just have this in your mind today, your last name is I belong to Jesus or Christ's or... Son or daughter of the living God, um, the betrothed of Jesus. That's your last name. I'm not sure exactly what that, uh, what the, the single phrase would be, but you get what I mean, right? He now deals with us, I, continuing on, he now deals with us with great affection and is uh, proper toward his bride. And, he, and we are given his great love, tenderness, and sympathy. In the coming wedding of the church to Christ, we are brought face-to-face with the divine affections. The gospel is not designed to make us Stoics. It allows full room for those social feelings which are so necessary and beneficial to our present state, writes Newton. And the affections and beauty of mutual love in the greatest marriage on earth are but an echo of the beauty in the gospel. He goes on to talk about how Jesus is our all-sufficient prophet. And he says this, divine truth cannot be perceived and received into the heart merely by opening a book and reading the words of the page. So when we open the Bible, we do not merely open it up and kind of try to figure it out in our own wisdom what it means uh, both about who God is and what it says about us. Spiritual and relational dynamics must occur by his work and through the gospel, Christ opens our eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit. In his work on the sinner's soul, Christ remains the heart. Of, uh, Christ remakes the heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and he opens the sinner's eyes to the incredible riches of God's word. The divine, this divine illumination comes from Christ alone, as the Logos or Word. Christ is our all-sufficient Prophet, our Teacher, our, and the self-disclosure of the invisible God. Christ is the telescope by which we see God in creation and the clue that leads us through the history of divine providence. Through Christ, the Bible is applied to the hearts and lives of Christians. In Scripture, creation, and in providence, Christ is our illuminating prophet. So even as you think about what what does God think about me today? What does God want me to do today? Where is God leading me today? Christ is the prophet who comes and opens God's word to you and, and brings it alive and plants in our hearts. Like we don't do that on our own. That, that moment where you begin to taste and see, oh, this is God's word and it makes sense and I want to live by it and it means something to me personally. That's not just kind of like your uh, mind having the light switch turned on. That's Jesus walking in the room and turning on the light switch and pointing your eyes down and, and implanting in your heart. That's Jesus personally there. But that, that, that's how Jesus is all-sufficient because we're not left to our own to try to figure out what God wants us to do or who he is or what he says about us. Uh, Jesus comes in and fills in the gap. Um, he is the one who, who brings all those things alive for us. So then uh, John Newton goes on to talk about Christ as our priest, our all-sufficient priest. This is the wisdom of God that befuddles the wisdom of man. It seems impossible to believe that the title of the true God and eternal life should properly belong to that despised man who hung dead on a cross. And he goes on to say, uh, John Newton, the older I grow, the more I am drawn to preach much concerning the person, the atonement, the glory of the Savior, and the influences of his Holy Spirit. There are other truths important in their places, but unless beheld through the medium of the cross, they have a faint, they have a faint effect. He goes on to describe, the ascended Christ who is in heaven is the foundation of our hopes, the source of our sublimest joys, the sufficient and only sufficient, the answer to all the suggestions by which guilt, fear, unbelief, and Satan fight against our peace. Surrounded as we are with enemies and difficulties, we plead, against every accusation and threatening, that our head is in heaven. We have an advocate with the Father, a high priest upon the throne, who, because he ever liveth to make intercession, is able to save to the uttermost. That's, he's quoting Hebrews 7.25 there. Um, Jesus is our all-sufficient priest. He's the one who has done away with all the claims that our guilty conscience, that our enemy Satan himself... Uh, would have against us and say God could not and ever and never would love you. Uh, That's certainly true apart from Jesus, but he's not only an all-sufficient priest in that he died for us, but now he lives in heaven and pleads personally. Can you imagine this right now? Jesus is praying for you personally. He's thinking about you, and he knows uh, the sins that you are tempted by. He knows the weaknesses that kind of baffle you and frustrate you, and he knows just the things that are going on against you, and he's praying for you. And he is all-sufficient and powerful because he purchased uh, the claim that uh, Satan's sin and death would have against you. And now he gives you all that God would have for you in himself to walk and be faithful with him. So then Christ uh, is described as our all-sufficient king. Christ now reigns as the all-sufficient king. He fought, he bled, he died but in dying, he conquered, he destroyed death and disarmed all of its sting. He destroyed him that hath the power of death, Satan. He took, he overturned the foundations of his kingdom, broke open his prison doors, released his prisoners, delivered the prey out of the hand of the mighty. Uh, this is, uh, this is how, what we talked about last year when we looked through the book of Exodus, that the king is the one who comes in and rescues us out of our darkness, that we actually long for, we want, and he dies in our place, and then he leads us into freedom, into his presence, to be with him and to be his family. Christ then goes on uh, to be described as our all-sufficient friend. Uh, Maybe this is one that we need to think about more deeply, that Christ is not only these lofty terms of our king, our prophet and priest, but he is also our all-sufficient friend. The Christian lives a strange, mysterious life. That seems to swing daily from darkness into light, from peace into strife. Time and time again our friend breaks into the strange and mysterious riddle of life and empowers us for a sweet and stable life in the storm. And yet, for all his help, we are enigmatic friends in return. We are forgetful and faithless and disloyal, but our neglect and distrust and disobedience does not diminish his love for us. He is steadfast. He is the friend we wish we could be. He's the all-sufficient friend we need. And if he were not, he would surely spurn us from his sight. He goes on to say that Jesus is always near, about our path day by day and our bed by night, nearer than the light we, by which we see or the air we breathe, nearer than we are to ourselves, so that not a thought, a sigh, or a tear escape his notice. Jesus is our all-sufficient friend. With Christ as our friend, we find our source of daily joy in this tremendous and this turbulent life. Friend becomes for Newton an affectionate, loaded shorthand title to embrace the full scope of Christ's all-sufficiency, personally applied to us. So, as we've been working through these categories, I think this friend one is the one that. Maybe drives home most deeply this truth that Jesus is all-sufficient. He's not just this all-sufficient uh, genie that we go to, but he's actually our friend. Like we think about, we sit down next to our friends at missional community. We talk to our friends uh, through the day, either text or whatever to try to, okay, I need help. And Jesus is our all-sufficient friend. He loves us and he cares for us. And he sees, you know, when you're in the car or wherever you are, this the ugh, the frustration of what's going on or the struggle, or the perplexing demands of just ordinary life that glorifies God. Jesus is there. He sees those things, and he's empowering us. This is uh, one of the dynamics about John Newton's ministry that I find uh, most alluring is that uh, Tony Rinkie describes in this section I want to read that uh, Jesus is not merely just kind of like this doctrine of truth that we kind of, you know, write down on a page and write out the Bible verses for. Those are all certainly good and true and necessary, but he's actually a person. It's not surprising, Tony Rinkie writes, uh, but it is striking how consistently Newton focuses his writings and hymns ultimately on the person of Jesus Christ. All of Christ's work and all the combined doctrines of justification and propitiation and adoption are foremost communicated through the relational categories of Christ's person. At every point in his writings, Newton wants to point other Christians back to Christ, not merely to theological labels. And so Newton points often to the one who gives substance and concepts and the promises in order to point us again and again to a man, to the God-man, who accomplishes all these things for his eternal glory. A reader of Newton's works is struck by his frequent return to the person of Christ of whom Hang on whom hang all his hopes, not merely to correct outline, outlines of doctrine, and not, not merely to correct out, outlines of orthodoxy. Newton was driven to expound the one mediator between God and men, quote, the man Christ Jesus, from 1 Timothy 2, five. To know Christ perfectly, this is what he goes on to say in terms of, uh, not only to know Christ as he has personally applied to us, but to but to know him uh, as who he is and to see him. This is uh, called the beatific vision. Newton describes this as to know Christ perfectly, to be with Christ is a zenith of eternal life, the communication of our union to him, the consummation of our union to him. To behold his presence is the highest pleasure joy's apex to behold his glory is to made, be made holy and to be made holy to be made happy and to be made holy is to be made perfectly happy apart from this ultimate hope the created world would be a dungeon of despair for God's children. but faith animates our lives with an eschatological so that's a a, a viewing towards the end of christ's returning that's what that word means eschatological. An anticipation of the presence and glory of Christ. We will not find our full and permanent happiness here, nor will we find Christian joy automatically, like a daily newspaper at the door. God intends for us to find joy kinetically, and that means to find joy in action, as we work out our faith with fear and trembling, as we fight the good fight of faith, as we worship, fellowship, and engage in all various the various dynamics of the Christian life together. But even in this... Our hope of eternal joy sobers our expectations for the joy we, de- we can expect and ex- to experience in this life. This is the thing that I find most uh, alluring or in, I, I most helpful from John Newton is that uh, the Christian life is about not only walking with Jesus personally here as our friend, but seeing him face to face because he is all sufficient. He's the one who fills in and, su- and supplies all that we need. Uh, that doesn't mean that we get everything that we want or even things that we want on our own time. Uh, But we do get Jesus, who walks through all these struggles that we have on a daily basis. He finishes the chapter with this. To imagine the Christian life as progress toward our own self-sufficiency is wholly wrong. All Christian maturity is advanced toward greater Christ-likeness. And because Christ is a great Savior, Newton can own the fact that he is a great sinner. I trust the great desire of my soul is that Christ may be all in all to me the whole dependence that my whole dependence love and aim may center on him alone or as he said earlier in his life none but Jesus is my motto or after penning this verse in a letter the cross of Christ of uh, Jesus Christ my lord is food and medicine shield and sword Newton writes Take that for your motto. Wear it in your heart. Keep it in your eye. Have it often in your mouth till you can find something better. The cross of Christ the tree of life and the tree of knowledge combined. The Christian life centers on Christ, the mighty, crucified, resurrected Christ. Look unto the Lord Jesus Christ, Newton writes. Look unto him as he hung naked, wounded, bleeding, dead, and forsaken upon the cross. Look unto him again as he now reigns in glory Possessed of all power in heaven and earth, with thousands and thousands of saints and angels worshipping before him, and ten thousand times ten thousands ministering unto him, and then compare your sins with his blood, your wants with his fullness, your unbelief unbelief with his faithfulness, your weakness with his strength, your inconstancy with his everlasting love. By fixing our eyes on Christ, our lives are filled with holy affection and, and delight. And we go forth in a joyful obedience to Him in our daily lives, in our families, in our callings, in our ministries, in our, and in our vocations. Christ is our theme in the pulpit and in the par- parlor. He is the core of the Christian life and ministry. As we've been working through this chapter, I, this again is why I, I pointed this. I wanted to point us to this chapter about Newton is because we have been talking about in Matthew 17 how Christ is an all-sufficient Savior, an all-sufficient King. Jesus is all-sufficient for a struggling church. For for you and I as we struggle— uh, and we see this, uh, I think Newton brings us to this point uh, in Matthew 17, right? This is the the vision where they see Jesus face to face in all of his glory, his face shining like the sun, and he's, he's standing there with Moses and Elijah uh, on the top of this mountain. And after they're terrified by the voice of God for seeing who God truly is, um, Matthew 17 says this in verse 8, And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one, but Jesus only this is after Jesus came and touched them tenderly rise and have no fear and they lifted up their eyes and they saw no one but Jesus only I hope that for you and for me this week that we go into our day and whatever is facing us trusting not only in Jesus as kind of this theological concept of being all-sufficient but as your friend who cares for you who is all-sufficient, and that you would only have him in your, in your eyes and in your ears and in your mind and in your heart as we walk through this life together. I pray that uh, God would do this by the power of his Holy Spirit, that you would experience Christ as being all-sufficient as your shepherd, your husband, as your friend, as your prophet and priest and king, that you would experience that Jesus is all-sufficient for people like you and me who struggle. Until next week, we'll be looking at Matthew 18. I pray that you experience the goodness of God. See you guys soon. Thanks for listening to this podcast from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. If you'd like to know more about King's Cross, what God is doing here in Manchester and how he's using King's Cross to advance the gospel of Jesus, you can visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, King's Cross NH at all those various places. If you have enjoyed the music for this, Matt Litzinger, one of our worship leaders, you can find more about him at mattlitzingermusic.com